Amen. Amen. Hey, my name is Ryan Paulson. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, you may not have noticed me because my shirt's tucked in and I'm wearing a coat today, but it is me. Um, and uh, welcome if you're new. I, um, I took a class when I was in seminary called Film and Theology. It was um, my way of not taking any more languages or classes that I thought would be too challenging because I had a, a pretty heavy load. Now, I was mistaken because our theology professor taught the class and he made it his personal vendetta to just not make it a class where you watched movies. But um, nonetheless, I found myself in this class called Film and Theology. We, uh, throughout the course, we, we, we would watch movies and critique them and talk about the theological implications of them and, and write uh, papers on, uh, on the theology behind the movies. Well, during this class, a movie um, came out by the name of Milk. Now, my, my guess is that you probably haven't seen the movie. You may have. Milk was a movie about um, a man named Harvey Milk, who was uh, the first openly gay politician to be elected in the state of California. Uh, he was, let's see, elected to the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. Sean Penn played this man, Harvey Milk, and they made a movie about it a few years ago. Well, as a class, there was only uh, four or five of us in this class, along with our professor. We decided to go see the movie Milk. We decided to go see the movie Milk on opening night. And we decided to go see the movie Milk on opening night in Hillcrest in San Diego, which was sort of the um, epicenter where, where most of the homosexual population hung out in San Diego. Now, needless to say, it was an interesting, at times, uncomfortable experience. We sat, the five of us, in this row in this movie, knowing that we were very different than the rest of most everybody in that theater. And there was this one scene in the movie where um, a a tele-evangelist by the name of Anita Baker... And they film her on uh, this in this movie, and it's the actual footage from when she made this statement back. Um, I forget exactly when the when the movie was based, but she made this statement: "We love the sinner, but we hate the sin." And, and I was taken aback by that for two reasons: one, because those very words had come out of my mouth on many occasions. And as she said it, I thought, yeah, I think that's the way that Jesus interacted with people. The second thing that stood out to me was the reaction of everybody else in the theater. It was like she had dropped the most comedic line you had ever heard. The theater erupted in laughter. And I was taken aback because I didn't really process the comment in that way. I thought that there would have been either anger or outrage, but comedy. I was sort of shocked. It wasn't what I expected. And so I was left to process this, what I believe to be a true statement about God. And the way that his followers seem to have carried it out. That that in some way there was a dichotomy between the way that Jesus lived and the way that his followers are perceived. Now, now, it may just be perception, but there may be some truth behind it too. Can we put that on the table this morning and say, maybe. See, here's the thing that sort of haunted me. Is that sinners were drawn to Jesus. I've been haunted by this ever since I became a follower of Christ is that I read the scriptures and I go, wow, like people whose lives are messed up and in shambles love being around Jesus. People that are, are, are 
outwardly disobedient to God, loved being in the presence of Jesus. Why don't they love being in the presence of his church, I wonder? I've wrestled with that. And the Pharisees, and we're going to continue our series on the Pharisees. If you were here last week, you'll remember. These were the, the quote-unquote good religious people. Their, their, their sect had formed during a, a, a time of persecution to the Israelite people. They formed in order to protect, protect good doctrine. They formed in order to protect the ways of being a Jewish person and interacting with God. And they formed in order to be God's mouthpiece in the world. But they seem to clash with Jesus. Now that's an issue. If you're God's mouthpiece and Jesus is God, you should be in unison. Amen? And they weren't. And they weren't. And, and I wonder if, um, and, and this is, this, this message, it was painful for me to prepare. I'm just going to put my cards on the table. Because I had to look at my own life. So if it's painful for you to hear, welcome to my week. Okay? I'm just kidding. And I don't want to, I don't want to be overly, I don't want to press overly hard, but I feel like this passage really presses at least on me. Because here's what Jesus is going to say in this passage. He's going to say that his way of grace invites us to a passionate pursuit of all people. All people. Not most people, not some people, not a lot of people, but all people. And he's going to give us an example of what that looks like and what that means in the gospel of Luke today. In fact, this story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, and they all tell a really similar story. It's a story of Jesus' light shining in the midst of darkness. We teach our kids this song, don't we? Um, <laughs> I practiced it. I mean, um, help, will, you, will somebody help me out? The hide it under a bushel? No. Uh, I'm going to let it shine. This little light. Right. So we, we teach our kids this little light of yours. Go. Let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. Not that they know what that is, but, but no. No, how dare you? Let it shine. And here's what I've, here's what I have noticed, okay? Is that it's really easy to let my light shine here. It's really easy to let my light shine in, in church. It's even easy to let my light shine in small group. Here's the thing I've noticed about light though. Light makes a huge impact in the darkness and it can really be ignored when it's just with all the other lights. Will you kill the lights for a second? Oh, here. See, light makes a lot more of an impact in the darkness than in the, in the light, doesn't it? I, I think that Jesus designed us both to live in community with other believers. But when he talks about being a light on the hill... And not hiding that light. I think what he means is the light at some point has to enter into the darkness. In order to make an impact, in order to, to bring light to an area that doesn't have that, it has to enter into the darkness. But my question for us, for you, and, and, and definitely for me is, have I gotten so comfortable with my light being amongst other lights that it hasn't ventured into the darkness? Because can I be honest with you? 
I love being around you. And it's harder for me to live as light in the darkness. It's easier for me to live as light in the light. Amen? So let's take a look. Let's take a look at the way that Jesus allows his light. And can we agree? That's a bright light to shine in the midst of darkness. Luke chapter 5 verse 27 is where we pick up the story. Starting in verse 27, reading 27 and 28, it says this. After this, we'll come back to that. Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. Now, the after this is right after a story where four friends bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And they dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down. That's a pretty um, brash move for a group of guys in order to get their friend in front of Jesus. And here's what Jesus says in the presence of everybody. He says, your sins are forgiven. And can you imagine being the people that brought your friend? <clears throat> hey, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed, but he can't walk. Sort of why we brought him to you. Right? Are we going to have to carry him home? Thank you for forgiving his sins, but that wasn't really the point. And Jesus, everybody looking at him, he goes, all right, so the Pharisees and scribes start talking about how Jesus is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins, which is exactly the point. And Jesus says, which is harder, you guys? Come on. Which is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you might know the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sins, why don't you get up, take your mat, and go home? And he does. And the crowds are shocked. I mean, they're taken aback. They hadn't seen this kind of power. They haven't seen this kind of influence. They hadn't seen this kind of stuff. And Jesus walks out. And Luke records, after this, as in right after this, as in right after healing the man who was lowered down in front of him, Jesus walks right to Levi. And so you're going to get to see a picture of how Jesus, in, his, in a sense, places chips that he earns in front of all these people. Because everybody's going, wow, that's amazing. And here's what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't go to the synagogue and start unpacking the scriptures, which I wouldn't knock him for doing. He doesn't go and he doesn't just gather a bunch of people around and he starts to start to teach. He walks up to a man named Levi. An outcast. A man who, as it says, a tax collector, and that meant that he won an auction by bidding when Rome came and said, hey, we need somebody in this area to rob these people who's in. And Levi raised his hand and said, me, me. Because Rome gave him a quota, and Levi had to meet a quota based on Rome's standards. But whatever Levi took above and beyond the quota was his. So here's two things you know about Levi. One, he's a rich man. Two, he's a hated man. You're going to see with who he invites to his little party that he throws for Jesus that he doesn't have a lot of friends other than other tax collectors and other people who nobody else would invite to their party. He's a rich man. He's a hated man. And so as Jesus walks out from doing this miraculous healing, you wonder what everybody in the crowd was thinking. 
You wonder if they were muttering under their breath, okay, here we go. Here we go. He is God and he's going to come and he's going to lay the thunder on Levi. He's going to talk about how Levi has been destroying families and robbing people and not doing justice and not caring about mercy and not walking humbly with our God. That's what he's going to do. Jesus walks up to Levi. And if there's two words that Levi would have never thought would have come out of Jesus' mouth, they're the very words that he hears. Follow me? I mean, and and the the ripples throughout the crowd must have been like, did did he just say, follow me? Okay, good. Now he's going to lead him off a cliff and he's going to push him. But they all knew that's not what that phrase meant. That phrase meant, come and be a a learner of me. Come and be an apprentice. Come and be a, a follower. Levi? Rich Levi? Outcast Levi? Follow me? And throughout this passage, we're going to look at a contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus. The contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus. And here's the first one that we see. Pharisees hold people to their past while Jesus releases people to their destiny. Pharisees hold people to their past. See, Levi is a tax collector. And therefore, Levi will always be a tax collector in some people's eyes. And when Jesus walks up to Levi, he doesn't see a tax collector. He doesn't see somebody who is too far gone for Jesus to interact with, for him to make an impact on. What he sees is a person in need with the potential to follow after him and be full of life and for the kingdom. He also sees somebody who he knows he's called and chosen to be a follower of his. I told you this was a painful message to prepare. And one of the reasons is because I've realized that it's easier for me to hold somebody to their past or judge their present than it is to fight for their future. It's easier for me to create hedges around why I shouldn't go there than it is to say, what if the grace of God gets a hold of them in the same way that it got a hold of me? I love the way that Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians to this church in Ephesus, states it when he says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not of your own doing. This saving isn't your deal. It's God's. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And listen to this. For we are his workmanship. Literally, his poetry, his story, his song. In the Greek, it's the word poema. It says, we we are his poem to the world. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk into them. You see, God's grace doesn't just save you from hell. It releases you to your destiny. It releases you to the future that he called you to, which is, we live as his story, as his poetry, as his song. And every single person Jesus saw, I think he saw through the lens of the weight of his grace. I think he saw through the lens of what just might happen if they're able to get a hold of the fact that in 
spite of their brokenness, in spite of their hurt, and in spite of their pain, God was for them. Maybe like what Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So, hey, there's two prerequisites in that verse, aren't there? One, you got to be weak. Two, you got to be ungodly. Listen, I know you. You can, you can do those. I know me. I nail those. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us, released us. Let me ask you, how do you see people? How do we see people? I mean, is it easier to see people in their past and in their present and caught and bound or Just maybe my God gives South fellowship and you, his people, the ability to see what grace might do and the way that grace might change. Because Levi lives his life like this as a, as an outcast, as somebody who's robbing people. And then it says he left everything and he rose and he followed after Jesus. I think it not only means that he leaves his tax booth and that he leaves his wealth, but it also means that he leaves his past. And he says to Jesus, everything that defined me in the past is now in your hands. I'm coming open-handed to you. And hey, the truth of the matter, friends, will you look up at me for just a second? That's the way all of us come to Jesus. Either open-handed or not at all. And Levi's this beautiful picture of what it looks like to say to God, all right, I'm going to follow after you. The story goes on in Luke chapter 5. It says, And Levi made him a great feast. Isn't that awesome? That maybe there's just just enough secularism left in Levi to throw a party. That's awesome. That's great. He hasn't been in church long enough to realize that's probably not a good thing. But he goes, no, let's, let's throw a banquet. Let's throw a party. Let's have great food and let's all gather around and celebrate like we really believe the grace of God is for us. He had a great feast in his house and there was a large company. I mean, this is like, you got to picture the house. It's not just like around the little table. It's bursting at the seams. A large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Some other translations uh, will say tax collectors and sinners. This is a shady group. This is a group you don't leave your purse when you go to the restroom. All right, you, you take it with you. You've got the belt on you that you keep your money in. Like when you're traveling overseas and you're going, all right, we are not, we're going to be really careful around this crew. Pharisees. And their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The tax collectors and the sinners were the only other people that would have responded to Levi's invitation. doesn't matter if he's serving prime rib or what he has going on at his meal. Nobody else shows up. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. 
Uh, in Mark, Mark talks about the fact that the Pharisees saw Jesus. They, they were looking as in like looking through the window of this house and they see Jesus walk in and their jaws drop to the ground because what in the world would the, the holy, the son of God, the pure, the spotless lamb be doing around these type of people? I mean, if he were a prophet, wouldn't he know who they are? Wouldn't he know who they are? And wouldn't he know that eating with them meant that he was friends with them? Yeah, he would. See, you see, the message of Jesus and the way of Jesus is completely different than that of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees want to be around people like them. The Pharisees are all about having their light shine. But Jesus wants to help people grow, be like, grow to be like him. So here's what Jesus knows. I can let my light shine among people who already know the light, or I can enter into the darkness with my light. The Pharisees, see, they, they assumed that when Jesus showed up on the scene, that he was going to be exactly like them. That he was going to tell people what they were doing wrong. Ironically, he did, but it was mostly he told them. And they thought that he would hold his head high. And he would walk the streets and he would avoid people because of their past or their present or what they were involved in. And the way of Jesus was completely other and it shocked the Pharisees. See, here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew if I'm going to be the hope of the nations, and if I'm going to bring light in the darkness, then my proximity to people's pain matters. Here's what I've sensed in my own heart. I want to be a light. But I'd love to do it online. Okay? I'd love, to, I'd love to be a light on the, I'd love to be a light somehow that maybe could be reflected off of something else and then bounced into somebody's life. But as we see Jesus, the way that he brings healing and the way that he brings hope and the way that he brings peace into desperate, hopeless, peaceless situations is with his presence. See, your proximity to pain will be one of the determining factors in whether or not you're able to be a light in the midst of that. And see, the Pharisees, they were more interested in avoiding and judging and, created, and creating hedges, but Jesus was interested in engaging and changing. Listen, I used to be around college students a lot who would go, see, Jesus loved to party. And what my response was always, Jesus loved people who partied. I don't think Jesus disliked being at a party, but that wasn't why he was there. I mean, he left the best party ever to come here. Right, okay? It's not like he's going, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to eat this stuff. What? What, we got karaoke? We don't have that in heaven. That's great. You know, he's going, he's going, listen, I am going and I'm embracing this because I love the people who are there. I love the people who are there. Can you turn to somebody next to you and say, this one might hurt a little bit? Okay, because here's the key, one of the key truths. Jesus doesn't call you to preserve your holiness through isolation. 
He calls you to pierce the darkness through your presence. And as I've taken note of my own life, some of the times that I write off actually engaging people that are other than me is a really spiritual holy reason. I don't want them to rub off on me. It's as though that that wasn't on Jesus' radar screen, though. It's as though he was so confident in the righteousness that he had because of who he was in light of who his father was that he was able to enter any and every situation to bring hope and to bring healing. Not wondering if they were going to rub off on him, but knowing that he was going to rub off on them. That's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. And I'm not going to go into specifics because I really like my job, okay? But I think that this has a huge bearing on how we live as followers of Jesus. There's this um, pillar in the country of Georgia. It's called the Kotsky Pillar. It's 130 feet tall. It rises right out of the earth. I mean, it's crazy. It used to be, on top of it used to be this um, pagan ritual site where they would go up and they would uh, pray for fertility and other things like that. And in the 1700s, the good old church came along and they built a church up on top of it. And people would go up there. There's one guy that went to live up on the Kotsky Pillar in the church there. He lived there 40 years, never came down, died up there. not having an influence on anyone. Hey, he was probably singing, I'll shine my light, and nobody cared because it wasn't anywhere near the darkness. Can I be honest with you? There's days where I'd choose that. It's easier. Let's just be honest. It's easier That's not the picture of what God has called you to, friends. He hasn't called you to a, a, a church on a pillar. He's called you to a hospital with bleedy, messy, messed up, broken people coming in. And if this is what we ever become, God, please shut our doors. Because this is not a picture of his church. And he'll say it himself. You don't have to believe me. He's going to say it himself. And I'm going to fly through a few slides here. Oops. Here's the way that Jesus says it. So the Pharisees, they question him, why do you eat with tax collectors? And why do you eat with sinners? And he says to them, those who are well have no need for a physician. They, they don't need a doctor. And so some of the guys in here are going, amen. You know, you throw your wife the elbow. See, I don't need to go to the doctor if I'm well. I feel fine. Good. Just kidding. Okay. But those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Listen to the way that Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 through 13. He says, but when they heard this, this is Matthew's recount of the same thing. Those who, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, 
And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. See, sacrifice was their way of approaching God in holiness. It was their way of, of an animal dying in their place so that they could approach God for righteousness and receive it from him. But what Jesus says is, that's not why I came. I didn't come to perpetuate an old system. I came to bring a new system. And here's the new system that mercy flows from me. And in order to receive mercy, you need to know that you're people that are broken and in need. You need to know that. So Jesus says, it's not about you getting better on your own. It's me being your goodness for you. And he lumps all of humanity into one of two categories. So everybody in here, everybody that you will see ever is lumped into one of two categories. Either people who are sinners and know it and people who don't. Those are the only two categories Jesus creates. And so he says this game that we often play of propping ourselves up by comparing ourselves to somebody else. You see, whenever somebody says I'm a good person, it's only in relation to other people. Right? I mean, it's, I'm good. I, I do these things. I don't do these things. But I mean, you wouldn't believe what they do. And in fact, I'm glad that they do because that makes me good. Because if everybody was good, then I'd just be average. And we know that's not good enough. He says, no, 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 no. There's only two categories. One, those who are broken and sinful and know it. And those who don't. And those who don't. And I think in reality, as I've wrestled with this this week, in reality, I think, I don't think it's my outward sinfulness and obstinance towards God that prevents me from interacting with Him. I think it's often my Pharisaical righteousness that creates the block. Because here's the truth of the matter Pharisees think they're perfect or are trying to be. And Jesus wants to give in people perfect his perfection. Pharisees either think they're perfect or they want to be. But Jesus wants to give in people perfect his perfection. You see, you don't need to be good to be around Jesus. You don't need to be perfect to be around Jesus. You just have to be honest. Here's the thing I've learned about me. It's a lot easier to try to be good than to be honest about my need. And Jesus says, I'm not playing that game. If you're broken and if you're sick, I am a doctor that will come and heal you. But if you never come to me and admit your need, I will never heal your brokenness. We've seen over the last few days, I mean, the picture of of people waiting for rescue. We've seen the people waiting for rescue who were knowing that their house is going to be taken away. And we've seen wonderful pictures of helicopters coming to rescue. Here's what we're also going to see and hear in the next few days that is, is, is just absolutely heartbreaking. Is that there's people that got that call. They got that call saying, hey, the, the big Thompson River is rising you got to leave. you got to leave. And they said, no. I'm not walking away from my home. I'm not walking away from my stuff. 
You lay that over this story, and I wonder if it sounded similar to Levi when Jesus approached his little tax booth. Come follow me. But Jesus, my my stuff is here. My life is here. If I follow you and release everything, all I have left is the fact that people hate me. And now Rome hates me too. My own people hate me. I've turned my back on everybody and you want me to leave it all and come and follow after you? Jesus says, yes. Yes. Friends, have you realized your need and followed in the same way? Here's the way that the great pastor and writer theologian tim keller puts it he says this here's the gospel you're more sinful than you ever dared believe and more loved than you ever dared hope see the gospel is not about jesus calling righteous people that is not the gospel the gospel is jesus calling people and making them righteous those are very different things Because if we don't know that we're in need, we'll never approach him to receive his grace and his mercy and his healing for us. You see, it's not just that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's only a friend to sinners. To people that knew that they were in desperate need. And people that knew that he was the healing balm for their soul. And people that came and they received his grace and his mercy to them. And it absolutely radically changed them. Radically changed them. To the point where a sinful tax collector who robbed people blind, that was his profession, who didn't have a friend in the world except people that were doing the same thing and they would just pat each other on the back and console each other as much as they could. But one interaction with this man named Jesus changes his whole life and and Levi is not Levi the rest of his life. Oh no, Levi becomes Matthew. The very first gospel account that you read of Jesus and, and Levi doesn't just follow Jesus for one party and one night, but Matthew follows after Jesus for the rest of his life. He becomes a disciple. You see, when the grace and the mercy of God interacts with you in your brokenness, it releases you to walk into everything that Jesus designed you to walk into. And Matthew couldn't get over that. He couldn't get over it. The grace of God was so good that he just had to let his light shine. And I'm sure that there were times where he let it shine in the synagogue. But you better believe there were also times where he remembered that day when Jesus came and approached his table in his need and his brokenness. And where he said, you know what, that mission of being a light, not just in the light, but a light in the darkness is good enough to embrace for me, even if it costs me everything. And it might. I want to tell you it's worth it, though. I want to tell you it's worth it. Would you stand with me as we sing one closing song and and we're going to pray But I want to give just the Holy Spirit and obviously 
Holy Spirit's moving, working in your life. I trust that. But can we just take a moment to just ask God to search us and to know us?